If you open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It was uh, easy to tell where your hearts are this morning, because when Tim mentioned that there were 11 flavors of ice cream, uh, there was a response throughout the congregation uh, that could be heard distinctively. So uh, uh, I think that uh, everyone's going to thoroughly enjoy whatever it is that Richie's come up with uh, as far as the flavors, but uh, I think we'll we'll enjoy them. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we are so grateful that we can gather here as Christians, being adopted by you into your family and being able to, to know and to have the confidence that you are our Father in heaven and that you can be trusted and that you will watch over us and look out for us, that you will be faithful to your promises that we are truly saved because we have been saved by your grace and your goodness and by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask, as we always do, that, Father, as we turn to your word this morning, that, Father, again, our time in your word will be beneficial, that you will enable us, Father, to be able to grasp and to understand and to remember those things that are being put forth here in this letter. That, Father, we may continually be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. As always, we do thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it reads this way. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a, father, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, as Paul is in writing, there is a shift here in his focus, but there's a connection between what he's going to be talking about now and what he has been talking about them in the first four chapters of this book. Remember, again, he's been dealing with their, their kind of a cliquish behavior, their pride, uh, their attachment, really, to the secular culture. Um, and now he is going to move forward to deal with a very specific situation. Uh, in fact, he's going to be dealing with several specific situations uh, within this church. But the bridge here between what he's been talking about and what he's moving to is this, is the church as a whole has been unable to see and identify their own difficulties with pride and, of course, their adopting of secular attitudes. So this this sin that they're involved in has so blurred their vision that they're unable to evaluate and judge even the most explicit and most obvious moral issues from a Christian perspective. 
That's what's happened to them. Sin has blinded them. So it doesn't mean that they are unaware of what's happening, because they are. But the way that they are responding to it, and I guess the fact would be that the way they are responding to it doesn't seem to bother them. They're not unsettled by it. They're not unsettled by the sin. They're not unsettled by the way they're responding. And so their sin has blinded their judgment. Their sin has blinded them to the reality of the situation that they are in. Again, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So the issue here concerns a Corinthian Christian who is carrying on an incestuous affair with his stepmother. This is a relationship that's obviously prohibited in the Bible. In the Old Testament, if you look at Leviticus 18 or Deuteronomy 22, it talks about this and that it is a sin and viewed as such by God. But it was also in Roman law. There's a collection of writings called the Gaius Institutes. Uh, and there's some other, uh, other writings uh, as well dealing with Roman law. But in both of those sets, it deals with this specific sin. They don't call it a sin. Uh, they view it as being immoral and being against the law. This is a, not even barbarians would live this way. So all of society views this situation as being wrong, immoral, and horrific. And that's what Paul means then when he says this, that, that, there, that this immoral behavior in the church is just so incredible. And then he says, in fact, it's so incredible that even pagans, even those who don't believe in God, even those who hate God, even those who are anti-God, whatever phrasing you want to use, even they don't even do this. They don't even turn a blind eye to this. This is, this is just absolutely disgusting. So he really wants to, to point out, to kind of drive home the point, how far they have really, I guess you would say, fallen. How far down they have, how blinded they are to what's going on. Again, this activity was condemned in almost every single culture and in every single group. In fact, here Paul says nothing about disciplining the woman, suggests here that she's not a Christian. I was reading through some commentaries and they were asking the question, so what is the deal here? You know, he's talking about this man, but he says nothing about this woman. Why would that be? Uh, and I'm not saying that this is true explicitly. It appears to be true. That he's not concerned about her because she's not a believer. She may not even be a member of the church uh, at all. She may not even attend. Uh, but the idea here is that this man who is a member of the church is involved in the sin and it's wrong. If you were to read this out of the Christian Standard Version or the Holman Bible, depending on which one you have, it reads this way, that a man has his father's wife, a man is living with his father's wife. And so the word living there really carries the idea of what's going on here. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're living together in the sense of cohabitating every day, but the idea is, is that uh, in the Greek language, this is written in what's called the present tense, which means that this situation is an ongoing current reality. It was not a one-time event. All right, this is an ongoing uh, thing that's taking place. It's, it was happening as, as he was speaking. This was something that was taking place uh, and it had, had been going on for a while. And um, so then he asked the question in verse 2, which if you think about it, in a sense, is kind of strange. Verse 2 reads, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So when I read through that, my question was, wait a minute. What does he mean that they're puffed up? How, how is someone arrogant of this? I mean, what were they doing? 
And I, and I don't think that they were running around bragging about this. You know, they weren't running around saying, you won't believe what's happening in our church and this is good. That's not what they were doing. No one even imagines that's what's taking place. So what then would he mean? What is he trying to get at when he says that, that where the accusation is, is you're arrogant concerning this. And the arrogance seems to be this. And I think this is, this is right. The arrogance probably related to the young man's prominence. Either the family he came from, or maybe perhaps some position he held within Roman society. Perhaps it's his wealth, or a combination of these things. It was at least maybe his social standing. So the idea was, is that they were proud that this prominent young man was a member of their church. And because of that, they were overlooking his immoral behavior. Right? Sometimes you hear individuals say that. Like, like, let's say that you have a friend who... Um, attends a church in Washington, D.C., and let's just say, for the sake of argument, that some well-known, well-liked, which I know that's extremely rare, rare politician, but some well-known and well-liked politician is a member of their church. You know, if, if they, that might be one of the first things they tell you. Oh, yeah, I go to such and such church, you won't believe who one of our members are. It's so-and-so. And so there's kind of a, it's not, they're not necessarily bragging, but the idea is like, yeah, it's this pretty cool. Um, it might even give the church some prestige because... So-and-so goes there. So that's the idea here, is they're really pleased, this guy, they can count him as a member. And so as a result, they're turning a blind eye to, uh, to his immoral behavior. So then he says, again, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. And the word mourn there is a word that's commonly used for wailing for the dead. So they should be, they should be torn up about this. They should just be... Like, again, wailing for a dead person. This is just the outcry should be existing there in what's happening in the church, and there's just none of that. Now, many of the Jewish believers there, you know, because we're kind of getting into an area what's called, we, we normally call this church discipline. They're asking that, you know, Paul's going to get to the point where we ask the church to take care of this situation. Now, let me just pause for just a moment there, because just, just so we kind of, I'll give you a real brief, quick thing about church discipline and why it's important. Because some people have this attitude when they hear, let's say that you hear a story of a church and they have, let's say, publicly reprimanded or gotten on to somebody in the church for something they're doing wrong. And you will hear people both in and outside of of the Christian community saying, I just don't think churches should be doing that. That's not loving. That's not kind. They kind of get into that whole thing. But let's just pause for a moment because because we do understand a certain principle. So let's just deal with politics for a second. Nothing specific. Uh, but whether an individual is a Democrat or a Republican, if you have a, a well-known Republican or Democrat who gets involved in immoral behavior, what you will notice is almost always the other members of that party separate from that person. They don't want to be identified with them. Why? Because they already are. If you are a Republican and a Republican begins to behave very immorally, people automatically, yeah, remember the Republican Party. That's the party you're a part of. And he's acting like this. So there's an immediate separation saying, well, no, 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 we, we condemn that. And they, they make it a point to make sure that they at least let people know that they, as a group or as a party, condemn this individual and what they're doing because there's an identity there. It brings the party down. It would cause individuals to look upon them in a different way. Uh, and it would be very negative. Same thing that happens with, with uh, large corporations. Now, sometimes this, this goes you know, in, a, in a bad way, meaning because of all the political correctness 
uh, and the you know people are extra sensitive about certain things. I think in a very bad way. Uh, but if you have an individual who's a high-ranking officer uh, in a large corporation, in a very well-known public corporation, uh, if they are viewed as being intolerant, or if they're viewed as being Whatever it happens to be, where, the, where society as a whole may look upon them negatively, that company will often fire that individual or at least severely reprimand them severely and do so publicly and immediately. Why? Because they don't want to be associated as a whole with that behavior. They don't want people to look poorly upon them. Um, and then, of course, we oftentimes feel sorry for a family. If a family member... Uh, let's say there's a uh, family that we know. They don't have to be prominent, but there's a family. They have several kids. And let's say that one of the, it's, it's discovered that one of their kids is a serial killer or a serial rapist. We feel bad for the family because now the family is associated with the criminal activity of that individual. Well, the church is the same way. We're supposed to be a family. And we don't, we, we don't want the reputation of Christ. We don't want the reputation of his church to be viewed as being immoral or approving of immorality. So church discipline is important for that reason. But it's also important for another reason. And, and this is one that, that I think that we can all identify with, and that would be this. Let's say that you have a daughter who marries, and she and her husband move away to a different state. And let's say that, that uh, they get involved in a church. And you find out after a couple of years, let's say that you're talking to your daughter on the phone, and you can tell that things, there's something wrong. She's not happy. She's not really complaining about anything, but something is amiss, and you know that. And then as you kind of continue to probe and what have you, maybe you find out from her, or maybe you kind of figure out that things aren't going well in the marriage. In fact, not only are things not going well in the marriage, things are, things are bad in the marriage. And let's just say that her husband is either involved in immoral behavior or maybe he's acting violently towards her. And here you are hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And, and, and obviously you're very concerned about the situation. So what would you think about her church if you knew or you found out that her church knew all this was going on and said and did nothing? You would immediately be upset by that. You would want, you would think, well, you would think her church family would what? Come to her aid. And if they don't do that, you would view that as being very negative. You would be rejoicing if you find out that, that the, the church was getting involved, that they were um, uh, not only praying for them, but they were confronting the husband, but at the same time offering counseling, uh, offering uh, ways to help them, and trying to get involved to resolve the situation. You would feel a sense of relief and happiness that in this situation, God's people are taking action and not taking the attitude, well, this is personal, and we don't want to get involved, and we need that people, you know, you want them to step in. So when people have this negative view about church discipline, they're not looking at it the right way. It is, yes, it is for the purity of the church. It's also for, at times, the safety of individuals. It's what people do if they care for each other. If we have true compassion for each other, then there's, there's going to be maybe even a sense of sternness uh, and aggressiveness that's a, that's a very healthy thing when those that you have compassion for are in a situation where they're being hurt or being harmed or in, in some kind of way. So church discipline, and what we're talking about here, is not just trying to be nosy and trying to dictate to people how they should live their life. That's not what this is about. No one's telling individuals who they can marry and who they can't marry, except what the Bible says. No one's saying that they should buy a certain kind of home or not buy. It's none of those things. 
but it's dealing with you know these kinds of serious situations uh, and there's it's a longer list than you may think it's not just this kind of thing but where there is an involvement because we actually care about the individual and then on top of all of that it's not just the physical well-being of those people involved it's what's going on with their soul their relationship with god may be in jeopardy as a result of this and, and so, you know, we, we want to be involved because we want to see them flourish spiritually. So when Paul gets into all these things about this individual, you know, this is not just, you know, Paul trying to be the boss. This is not the church pretending that they are on some kind of moral high horse and uh, they're feeling better about themselves because, you know, they're going to deal with this individual. In fact, in this situation, it's none of those things. In fact, this church, is they're not on any kind of moral high horse high horse you know these individuals are just wallowing in immorality because they are by their silence approving they are condoning what's taking place and so that's why Paul is just astounded and why he says these things in the way that he says them but then back to where I was getting at and that's this the Jewish believers there were already accustomed to this idea of a religious community being involved in each other's lives let me read this to you this comes out of uh, out of a book dealing with uh, Jewish backgrounds. Um, I believe that this one here is by um, Alfred Edersheim. I did not write down who it's from, but nonetheless, it says this, the Jewish believers were familiar with how things would go in the synagogues. Synagogues, with fun- which functioned as social centers for their communities, disciplined their members, especially those whose immorality threatened to bring Gentile reproach on the whole Jewish community. Discipline could include corporal punishment, which would be beatings, We don't do that here. Uh, But the ultimate punishment was exclusion from the Jewish community. It was spiritual banishment. This expulsion was meant to be the spiritual equivalent of a death sentence executed only by God. But it was reversible if the banned person repented. So this was not a brand new idea to these individuals. And Paul is now going to encourage them to take action. This was not a brand new idea that when Paul is basically shaming them, scolding them, saying you should be mourning like you mourn for the dead instead of you're arrogant about this. So they would have immediately understood what he was getting at. And I believe that they would have felt ashamed uh, when he brought really the obvious to their attention. So in verse 3 he says this, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, when it comes to this, uh, some individuals, some commentators, try to soften the language here. You know, some will say, well, he really wasn't talking about him dying physically, uh, this is just another way of strongly saying that they were going to banish the individual. I don't think that's true. I think it's both banishment. He's not telling anyone to execute the individual. He's not doing that. What he is stating is place them outside the church, which is basically placing them outside the spiritual protection of the church, and that gives opportunity, obviously if the Lord sees fit, for Satan to take his life. Remember what we have in chapter 11, verse 30, when he's talking about uh, the difficulties they're having when they were gathered together for the Lord's table. He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And we know that sleep here, as it is in many places, a euphemism for death. There were those who were being disciplined by God, and they had died as a result of basically making a mockery out of the Lord's table. 
So this is not an unusual thing. We just don't think about it very often. But we, but we should remember that it is possible. It has taken place. And it may continue to take place. God is the one who, who's the one who's in charge of this. Where an individual will die, I guess you would say it this way, before their time, because of their sin. God takes them out. Um, I am convinced that in some cases, an individual who's a professed believer, who's involved in, let's say, ongoing sin, the reason why they're not dead is because they're not a believer. In other words, there's no home to take them to. I believe that a believer uh, is the one who actually faces um, the very real possibility of being taken early um, by the Lord because of their relationship with the Lord. It kind of goes back to when it comes to our children. Um, you know, your, your child's neighborhood friend might lie, and there's not much you're going to do about that, but you are going to take care of it if your kid lies. You know, if, if your neighbor's child um, is, let's say, disrespectful towards others, there's nothing you're really going to do about that. But your child, you can take care of that because of the relationship that's there. Same idea uh, that is here. So it's a very real thing. Now, we do have to make sure we're careful. I don't think this happens much now. It was, it was maybe a little more common, um, you know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and maybe even before then, where if, if a person was a believer and they died young, that, in, that some individuals might begin to speculate, oh, I wonder if they were you know, involved in sin. We have to be very careful with that. That, that's, that really belongs to the Lord. There may be a situation that, because you know the details, you may be convinced that's exactly what happened. Um, again, I don't think we should run around and you know, tell people that. I, do, I have used that before as illustrations in counseling people one-on-one uh, and talking to them about the very real possibility of that. But to be honest, most people don't think that's going to happen. Most people don't think God ever do that. I just want you to know that God does. All right, he, and here is it's very clear as he's making this statement uh, that this individual is to be put out um, for that. Also, some individuals uh, believe, uh, and I'm not sure how they um, kind of to me makes uh, I guess bring it together logically. But there are them, some who believe that this individual is a non-believer, and this is being said so that he can be saved. But I just have a problem with the terminology of turning someone over to Satan and then somehow associating that with becoming a believer. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening. I think he's a believer um, and that this is happening too. And that's why there's this severe form of discipline uh, that's being enacted against him. So again, it's become, uh, uh, this is a, a painful, this, this, what, this sin this individual is involved in, the way the church has reacted. It's a painful example of the price of self-centered indifference. That's where this church is at. It's a self-centered indifference. And it, it's a, this should be a powerful reminder that God demands holiness. Again, that doesn't mean that you and I are running around as being the moral police. But it should mean that we as individuals and collectively take holiness and the pursuit of holiness very seriously. Not because we want to be legalistic. Not because we want to judge anyone's life. We don't want to do any of those things. But we understand our propensity to sin. The, the natural uh, bent we have to sin as believers. We, have, we, you know, we, st- we struggle in the flesh uh, with temptation. We are weak. We need to support each other, to pray for each other, uh, to be strong against temptation. We need that. We need this accountability. And if we, ha- if we are self-centered, we tend to be then very indifferent towards the sins of others. And I think one of the main reasons, it's not the only reason, one of the main reasons why an individual is indifferent to the sins of another is because it's almost like we're hoping that they will be indifferent to our sins. 
There's, there's some connection there like that. You know, it's kind of like the good old boy thing. You know, when a bunch of good old boys get together. You know, you're not going to squeal that your, that your acquaintance here is, is cheating on his wife because even though you may not be cheating on your wife, if that was to ever happen, uh, he's bound by your silence to be silent himself. That's kind of the exchange that's there. Uh, the church is never to be a good old boy system. And that's where some churches have been ruined. Uh, most of the time, uh, it's ruined because those who are in leadership are quiet about the sins of other leaders. That's not a good thing. But it has happened when, even within the body of believers uh, that there's sin that's being overlooked. So we never celebrate when someone is caught in sin. We never celebrate that. We never celebrate when, when sin becomes public or if we have to make it public. Because the goal is, is for there to be repentance. We should always be uh, very sorrowful. There should be heavy hearts. Again, in the same way that when we, when we have had to discipline our children when they were young, we don't do so with glee. We're not happy that we get to spank our children. It pains us to spank our children. There are times that whatever kinds of discipline we may give out to our children, that it causes us grief. But we know it's necessary. And that's the way that it should be uh, among us as believers. So if you ever find yourself, even, usually it's going to be internal, where you're internally maybe a little happy so-and-so was caught, you need to repent of your attitude to the Lord because you are no better and no different than that individual. Um, we, sh- we should have an absolute love for that person the same way that if they were our blood relative. In the same way, how would you want a church to handle if it was your son or your daughter who was in sin, how would you want that church, if they had the discipline them, how would you want them to carry that out? That's how we should want to be carried out here among ourselves. And so that's what Paul, even though he speaks again very strongly, that's what he's getting to. And again, we have an example of his desire for them to, to, uh, to pursue holiness because in chapter 6, in verse 18, what does Paul say? Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And it is this passage here in chapter 6 that clearly states that uh, the idea that our body, which houses the Holy Spirit, is viewed as being a temple. This is where God dwells. And so what we do physically matters. What we do with our body matters a great deal. It matters to God. We are, in essence, when we sin with our body, we are, uh, I guess you would, we, would, we would picture it this way, we are bringing with us in our sin the presence of God. It's almost as if we are getting God to participate in the sin with us. God isn't, but that's, that's, that's a way for us to picture how hideous that is, that we would, we would be involved, at least in the ongoing sin, because that shows an absolute... Uh, lack of care and commitment and love to Christ, that we would do that. We, we should be angry at ourselves about that. And again, in the same way that you would be angry if there were some immoral person that had become friends with your son or daughter and ushered them into immorality. In other words, maybe your child would have never gone in that direction, or at least we believe they wouldn't have gone in that direction, and now because of this individual, this stinking person, that, that person who's pernicious is what that is, this individual has introduced my son or my daughter to this, we would be just enraged with that. That's the idea that we should have then when it comes to um, you and I not pursuing holiness and committing sin. 
So again, keep in mind that through all of this, though, Paul is concerned for the church, and he is concerned for the purity of the church, for the witness of the church. So looking at verse 4, he says this, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So when the church is gathered, they are to take action. That's why, you know, we, we have to do this a few times. We, the pastor doesn't do this on his own. The leadership does not do this on their own. In some churches, they've done this wrong. Because what they've done is they've quietly dismissed someone from the church. That's wrong. That's not what God wants us to do. That's not the way we are to do it. Again, we are not to do it to make a spectacle of the person because we're celebrating it. It serves as a warning to that person and to everyone else that God is serious about these things and that we must take sin very seriously and deal with it. And so the church here is uh, ordered by God, ordered by Paul, to take action. I don't know if you're aware of this, but most churches, um, I, I, I don't think we can say every church, but most churches in our country, somewhere in their constitution and bylaws, has a paragraph which basically kind of agrees with the idea of Matthew 18 and church discipline. But we can easily say that over 85% of the churches have never done that. You know, they have it there, but they just ignore it. And, and that leads to a weakness in the church. When we begin to tolerate sin, when we begin to move away from holiness, it weakens the strength of the church, it stunts the maturity of the church, and it also inhibits their witness uh, to the surrounding region, uh, wherever they may happen to be. Um, So again, back to uh, uh, verse 6 where he says this. So your glorying is not good. So again, he he takes it a step further that their non-action and and their being arrogant about this, he basically now says that they are, it's like they're taking glory in this. So again, by their silence, they're they're not only condoning, but because, because it seems that they're proud that that individual is a member of their church, then they are glorying in that individual and in his sin. They they go together. You can't separate them. He says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Let us therefore, uh, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So when he makes this statement, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is, what is he talking about here? Um, so I, I was uh, looking at some things, again, written by some, by some Jewish authors uh, about, uh, I asked the question, what's the difference between yeast and leaven? Because technically there's a difference between those two. So yeast is a substance that is added to bread uh, or to bread dough to make it rise. What leaven is, technically, is a piece of dough that's left over from a previous baking of bread. So then you take that leftover dough and allow it to ferment, and then you add it to the next batch of dough, and that causes it to rise. All right, so I guess you can save money because you don't have to keep using yeast. You use this old batch, and then you make the next batch, it rises, and then when after, you, after you bake it, uh, or after you, before you bake it, you take out a, a clump of that and you keep that, allow that to ferment, bake the bread. And then when this sours, you take this, add it to your, to your next dough, you make your bread, and then take a lump out, let it sour, and, and you just keep on using it. Just keep on using that. 
So the leftover dough, again, will ferment, and then it's added to the next batch of dough, and that will cause that dough to rise. So in the ancient world, when this was going on, sometimes the lumps of leaven could become filled with disease or dirt. Um, and so when it was added to the new dough, it would pass on the bacteria to the next loaf. So that would be a problem. So in the Jewish world, uh, the leavening agent, which is called, I believe, the um, Kometz, and I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. I'm sure I have to have a harder CH in there, but nonetheless, I'm not going to do it that way. Uh, they believe that Kometz uh, often symbolized wickedness and evil, and we see that in the Bible, where when, it, when it's used symbolically, uh, it means that. And then you have the matzah cracker, or matzah, which is unleavened bread, that represents purity and truth. So matzah was used in the sacrificial system of the temple. The offerings had to be absolutely pure, and anything that was leavened was considered impure because it had fermented and soured. Matzah unleavened bread, on the other hand, was always a symbol of purity. And the Talmud would say that leaven represents the evil impulse of the heart. So again, as the Bible shows us, it represents evil. Here they get more specific and says that it represents the evil uh, intents of the heart. And so the idea there, the word picture is, is that you have this in your heart and it, and it can cause the entire batch of dough, you, to sour and to become impure. And you can become infected. So then, basically, uh, when you go on and read, it says this. Jewish thinkers see shemets or kemets as that which rises and becomes leaven, as symbolically representing those tendencies in a man which arouse him to evil. They see the whole process of searching for the commets, which they would do at Passover, and eliminating it as a reminder to man that he should search through his deeds and purify his actions. In fact, part of the reason why we confess our sins uh, as we gather together as a church, part of the reason why we go through that is the idea is you're searching your heart. Uh, it's not just to be negative. The idea is to search for those impurities, to search for those sins, and the aspect of confessing them to God, because that's what's leading us to repentance, which is what? Turning away from that. We need to be concerned as believers to continuously be aware of how easily we slip into sin and that we need to be on our guard so we can turn away from the sin that we so easily commit. So they would say this, um, and this is in one of the commentaries on the Talmud. It says, mere renunciation of the imperfect past or one's own commits is not sufficient. It must be destroyed. It must be destroyed. It must be completely separated out. So again, here, when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, it tells the Corinthians not only that each individual should guard against personal sin, but also permitting a promiscuous sinner who professes to be a fellow believer to remain in their midst is a sure way to infect the entire community with sin. And that's really what's going on. That's why we have to deal with sin the way we have to deal with it. Because if we don't, it does mean that there is in some way a condoning of that behavior. It means that. That is going to infect some other people. It may not infect you. You may be absolutely convinced that not only is what that person doing is wrong, that you will never go that direction, and perhaps you won't. But everyone is not you. And there is an absolute possibility. It's a reality. It's going to affect people very, very differently. And there will be those who will, be, who will see what's not going on and that would germinate in their heart and bring about the attitude that perhaps it doesn't matter. And perhaps whatever they're going to do doesn't matter. Where sin can live unhindered, the church then remains nothing more than just a social gathering. And it has not become a community that is empowered and sanctified by Christ. And that's what we need to be about. We need to be about that.
Now, let me just, let me just end with this, and, that is, and, and that's something that's very important. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this man, whether he's a believer or not. I think he's a believer, but, you know, we don't have to be dogmatic about it. But here's the deal. In dealing with his sin, the answer is the same whether he's a believer or not. He needs to come to Christ. He needs to turn to Christ. As believers, we turn to Christ, not for salvation, but because I am saved, and I turn to Christ uh, to strengthen me and to help me to overcome my sin and to turn away from it. If the individual is an unbeliever, then it's clear what must take place. That person must come to Christ and confess their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ and in what he's done. He Remember, he died for our sin to free us from sin and to bring about our forgiveness of sin. That's the only way this can be dealt with. This, what this man has done cannot be undone. What he desperately needs, he doesn't deserve this, what he desperately needs is forgiveness. And so when we come across individuals that are caught in sin in our congregation, remember, what they need is forgiveness. No one deserves it. And it only comes because of Christ. And those of us who have been forgiven by Christ should be the ones who are first in line to forgive those who repent and confess their sins and turn to Christ and not be seeking some kind of retribution against that individual. Remember, we want to live in light of the gospel. We want to proclaim the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the answer to the problem that is here. If we're going to be a church that represents Christ, a church that is sanctified and empowered by Christ, that means that we collectively are a group of individuals who take the gospel very seriously, who take this transformation that God brings about as a result of our believing in Christ very seriously. And we then together pursue holiness. So when someone questions that or brings it up and says, oh, I heard about your church, you guys are all about holiness. And say, oh, absolutely. Yes, we are. Because this is what this means. Because people sometimes have a weird view of holiness, so you want to bring it down to brass tacks. And I've done this with individuals before, and, and it gives them a new perspective, and that is this. Because we, because we pursue holiness, that then means that when a businessman in our church meets your mom, he's not trying to rip her off and sell her insurance she doesn't need. That's what that means. What that means is that when a member of our church meets your daughter and she's in need of help, he's not trying to somehow seduce her and trick her into basically going to bed with him. That's what that means. That means we treat people right and properly and honest. That means that we can be trusted because we seek to be those who pursue good because of Christ. That's what it means. It's not some goody-two-shoe kind of a thing that, you know, people th- that we think we're better than others. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that. It does mean that, that we can be trusted to not do those kinds of things because we take our relationship with Christ as individuals and collectively seriously as we seek to honor him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love. And Father, I do pray this morning that if there are any here this morning that are perhaps struggling with ongoing sin, maybe not to the degree that this young man is is involved in that we've read about. But nonetheless, they are struggling in sin. And Lord, if it's because they do not know Christ, we pray, Lord, that they would bow before you this morning, that they would confess their sin and believe in Christ, ask you to forgive them and to save them from their unrighteousness. Father, whether they do that now or they do it later today or do it this week, Father, we would be... We would not hesitate to give you all the glory and the honor for such a thing taking place. We pray, Lord, that we ourselves would never be a hindrance to anyone ever coming to Christ because they somehow imagine that we don't take the gospel seriously. 
We pray that they would see in our lives, not perfection, because none of us are perfect, but they would see a serious commitment to Christ and a serious commitment to holiness. They would see sorrow and pain over our own sin and a desire to please you and to do good to others because of what you've done for us. So, Father, we thank you. We pray that you would help us to become a powerful church, a powerful church, Father, that is empowered by your Spirit to bring glory and honor to you in all that we do and in the way that we do it. And so, Father, we do thank you again for being so incredibly patient with us. We ask you help us, Father, to grow in Christ and to become more like Jesus. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen.